your religion real? Is your faith real? Does the word of God, does prophecy, does worship, does it honestly affect your life? Does it make a difference in your circumstances? Not only does it affect your heart, does it change anything in your life? Isaiah deals with this theme from the very opening of Isaiah chapter 1. You know, you cannot forget Isaiah 1 when he goes, I cannot stand the trampling of my court with your feet. Every time you come to church, you're just trampling as you come in. That's not what you expect. You expect everybody to tell you, hey, we want you in church. But instead, Isaiah talks about it. He goes, you're just trampling. When you come to church, you're trampling with your feet. Your lips are moving. But does it mean anything? Are you just giving me lip service? You remember that in Isaiah 29. In other words, are you just singing the words to the song, or is it making an effect? Is it making a difference? When you're singing, is your heart actually engaged in the worship? Church attendance, worship, festivals, spiritual holidays. Isaiah takes them and he challenges them all at the first opening prophecy of the book. It's a shocking prophecy. He challenges them and basically he's asking us, is your religion real to you? Does it make a difference in you? Okay, we're going to flip over to Isaiah 7 with that context in mind. And we're going to take a king and we're going to ask him the same question. And we're going to compare ourselves because he's about the same age you are. In Isaiah 7, this young king gets a word from the Lord. Now, I'm going to give you a little political military history so that you're not lost on this. It'll make it be richer to you. But this is the memoirs of the Syro-Ephraimatic War. Now, what on earth does that mean? That just means you've got Syria who's still an enemy to Israel that's above them. And Ephraim is just another word for the country of Israel. Okay, and Israel was split in two. Remember after Solomon? So you have Israel and Judah. Damascus is the capital of Syria. And they have a king named King Rezin. Can you remember that? So old King Rezin is king of the capital of Damascus, which is like our Washington, D.C. And his country is Syria. And Israel has a king, and his name is King Pekah. And Israel is king of how many tribes? Remember how many is in Israel? You got the ten tribes of Israel. Good. You've got Opeka and you got Orezin. You got Syria and you got Israel. And they have this common enemy, Assyria. Now, isn't that funny? You got Syria and Assyria. That's what kind of gets us mixed up. But Assyria, guess who was their capital? Nineveh. Remember when Jonah was like, I hate the Ninevites. Okay. So the head of Assyria was Tiglath Pelzer, number three. And when he got coronated head of Assyria, guess what he said? I will be king of the world. And I think he meant it. So King Rezin and King Pekah are against King Tiglath Pelzer over in Assyria. And so these two are supposed to be fighting this one. But have you ever had an idea that they think, we're going to pick up another person. What about our old brother over there in Judah, the king of Judah? Let's go get him to join up with us to fight him. So they invite their brother, King Ahaz. They make an invitation to him, and they say, won't you come help us oppose the Assyrians? Now, the difference about Ahaz, he was actually a Davidic king, and he was the son of David. Judah was the name of the country. What was the capital of Judah? Yes. And they had how many tribes? And they lasted a lot longer. Now let me tell you why everybody was so afraid of Assyria. Assyria wasn't your typical enemy. You remember when Egypt ran everybody off the map? 
Well, ever so often these guys will reach up and decide, we're going to be king of the world. It's still happening in the Middle East. Occasionally they just rise up, and I think God described them as wild donkeys of men, and so occasionally they just rise up, and they're going to take over the whole world. Well, Assyria has something about them that made them more terrible than almost any military force out there. And if you want to know, look at their sculptures. Look at their bas reliefs of the time period. They were using battering rams. So not only did they come into your city with foot soldiers and with arrows, they would take battering ramps and they would ram into your gates. They had siege towers. Actually, their military policy was like blood and terror. They had no use for their captives. I mean, they enjoyed, they specialized in torture. The way they thought of it, they loved to see what they could do to the enemies. There are sculptures where they take their victims and they actually impale them against the city walls. So when you go by, you see who they kill. They're just lined up, hanging. And they did it to them alive, not dead. Yes. Then, on top of it, one of the sculptures that they showed, they had the men spread out with their arms lifted out, and the Assyrians took their knives, and they were skinning their captives alive. And they take all the skin off of them. After they were through with you, whoever was left in your city, they would interbreed with them. So that totally made your population not be pure blood anymore. And you can imagine that feeling when you hate these people already. <laughs> and then they come in and take your wives and your daughters and they make a wreck of your culture. That was Assyria. Can you see why they might have been a little bit of afraid of them? Yeah, they were notorious. You can see why there was trouble in Denmark. <laughs> Gotham City had some problems here. Okay, so you got down who everyone is. Now, I personally got Ahaz mixed up with Ahab. Just in a quick reading, I wasn't paying attention to that last letter there, the Z and the B. So I was thinking Jezebel, yeah, I was waiting for her to show up. But no, 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 Ahaz is totally different. Ahab was of Israel, Ahaz was of Judah. And so you can't get those mixed up. This is a story that's going to be built on the real story of one man named Ahaz. And really, it's the most predominant story about his life. We're going to cover it tonight. And you're going to get a good, thorough understanding of it. Now, what I'm going to tell you is when I took the class of Isaiah for Dr. Avinshine's master's program. By far, this was his favorite portion. And honestly, I feel like he bequeathed a gift to me of giving me this understanding of this. I mean, you talk about, by the time he was through with it, it was like I didn't know Ahaz, like intellectually having knowledge of the king. It's like I had an emotional relationship with him. I mean, historical context can be a lot of fun because, you know, a lot of times we just skim over historical context and we're just reading to get what applies to us today. But sometimes with historical context, or let's say all the time, it gives you a rich foundation to be able to understand better how it applies to you. So since he gave it as a gift to me, I'm going to give it as a gift to you. We only studied Isaiah 1 through 12. I thought, what on earth could you go that many days, that many hours through Isaiah 1 through 12? Man, I cannot get over all that we learn. So we're going to go through it piece by piece so you won't miss the full impact. Now, the politics at this time, King Rezin of Aram is another name for Syria. So when you see the word Aram, you're talking about Syria, whose capital is Damascus. Yeah, Syria, whose capital, remember, Paul got saved on that long, hot, dusty road too. Okay, the same road. Okay. Now, Pekah is the son of Ramalia. Now, I want you to understand something here. Ramalia, Pekah being the son, now he is the king of Israel. Now, 
his father was not a king. Most of the time when you have a king sitting on an Israeli throne, his father was a king. He was not a king. Ramalia was a nobody. Israel's king was non-Davidic. They were having problems by this time. Guess how he became king? He became king because he assassinated to get to the throne. Very good. Wouldn't you like to be in that country? Pekah, now the king of Israel, it was pretty traumatic. Israel had had six kings within a 23-year period before their destructions. Man, that is, kings aren't lasting more than three or four good years. And they were taking them out. And Pekah assassinated Pekiah in order to get this throne. So with that basis, you think, well, what does that have to do? Watch what Isaiah does when he approaches Ahaz. All right, Isaiah 7, verse 1. We're starting with, is your faith real? When Ahaz was the king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramali, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. You see, in verse 1, it is his first year of reign, Ahaz. Think about it. First year that you're in office. First year that you're king. And suddenly, your cousins, all the people, start marching down, and they decide they're going to kill you in Jerusalem. And everything is in a mess the very first year you take office. And it says that the hearts of Ahaz and the people began shaking. You see that? Verse 2. Like trees are moving in the wind. Man, isn't that a good descriptive word? Have you ever been so scared that actually your insides were moving around on you? Your heart was... (laughs) I'm telling you, Ahaz was not scared. He was scared to death. I mean, the insides of Ahaz was like crazy. The people were scared. They were like, we got a young king. He's 20 years of age. (laughs) Can he lead us through this? And Ahaz is out walking. Literally, it says that the fear was so great in him. They were shaking like wooden trees moving in the wind, if you look in the King James. They invited him to join them. In verse 6, it says, look, we extended an invitation to you to join us to fight Assyria. And since you're not going to do it, now Assyria is no longer going to be your problem. We're going to be your problem. Damascus and Israel are going to come down here and whip you. And you know what? Not only are we going to whip you, we've got your job replacement in mind. You see in verse 6, they said, we're going to set up a king, the son of Tobiel. It's going to take your place. You know, it's something when you're going to get fired. But it's really bad when they've already got in mind who they're going to replace you with when you get fired. (laughs) And I don't think they're just going to give you an apartment and a severance pay and just leave. You'll walk out of here peacefully. I think old Pekka had it down of how you take the throne. And so they said, we were nice to you the first time. But the second time, we're not going to reason with you. We're going to just take someone and put them inside your place. First thing that happens, look at how Isaiah deals with him. This is the surrounding. This is how it starts out. In verse 2, he comes on the scene, and the first thing Isaiah deals with him is, who are you? Did you know when you're facing a crisis, the first thing you have to ask yourself, who am I? Look at Ahaz's name. His name is actually Jeho Ahaz, which means whom Yahweh has possessed. Jehu, Ahaz, sorry, I said it wrong. (laughs) Jehu. Okay, whom Yahweh has possessed. You know when I think he dropped the Jehu? I think it was more just possessed. (laughs) I was thinking, hey, he dropped the God part. Notice how Isaiah comes down and how he addresses him. He says, O house of David, in verse 2. 
You see what Isaiah's doing to him. The first thing he reminds him of, you know why you're on this throne? Because God has an everlasting covenant with David that his king will be on the throne. Do you see the permanence that he's given Ahaz right here? You're of the house of David. You have a covenant. This isn't just a hint. He is calling attention to the Davidic promise to David. He's giving him a lesson here. He said, don't you understand? You're involved in history. You're involved in prophecy. This whole thing that's happening to you is bigger than what you are. You house of David, you've got a covenant. Have you ever had God come to you and say, man, you've got a covenant with me? It's the first thing Isaiah draws attention to him with. And then when Isaiah is told to come, God tells him, take your son, Shear Jeshub. And you know what Shear Jeshub means? Everywhere, how would you like this name? Everywhere you go, they have to say your entire name, Shear Jeshub. Hey, come here, Shear Jeshub. It means a remnant will return. So not only does Isaiah show up and talk to the king whose name is whom Yahweh has possessed, but he brings along his son that says, I'm making a promise to you that you're not going to be wiped out, that a remnant will remain. Now, I don't think it's an accident of where King Ahaz was out walking. I don't think he was just bored and was in the garden palaces with the roses. I don't think he was in King Hussein's Sunken gardens, different king. But I think if you look where he was, he was by the water supply to Jerusalem. Have you ever thought if you're a king and you've got a city and you've got to defend it and it has gates all the way around it, the first thing they have to do is just cut off your food and water and then they watch you crawl out of there on your knees. They watch you starve to death. They watch you become skeletons. You know, Ahaz was looking at this and thinking, we're sitting ducks sitting here. I'm telling you, they may have come up to us in verse 1 and not been able to overpower us, but how long is it going to take for us to be able to, to be killed by them? Now, I think it must have been enough of a, a worrisome thing to him that the next generation, his son, Hezekiah, Ahaz's son was Hezekiah, the first thing he did, he went and fixed this. <laughs> if you go over there, you still can walk through Hezekiah's tunnel and see the water supply. He built it where Jerusalem, no matter what happened, they couldn't figure out where the water was being pumped into them. You can go down into the pool, it flows down. They covered the spring so they can't see it. It's called the Siloam Tunnel. You remember the healing that took place? It took place right here where Hezekiah dug this out. He made it square. The way they dug it, it was an unbelievable engineering feat. They dug it from both ends and met in the middle. The water level is knee-high, sometimes waist-high, armpit-high. And a lot of times on the tours, they'll let you wade through the water. Mmm, good drinking water. You can actually see the pick marks in the side where they got in there and pickaxed it. So, this is where Ahaz was. He was looking at their water supply going, all they've got to do is spit in our well. All they've got to do is poison us, and we're over with. And that's where God tells Isaiah, go up and meet Ahaz. He is worried out of his mind what he's going to do. Go out and meet him. Now, the first words God says to you. Now, it, doesn't this sound so much like how angels do it or what Jesus says? It says, say to him, be careful. Keep calm. Do not be afraid. <laughs> when you're having a really bad day and you've got a lot going on you're scared about, don't you like those three words from God? Be careful. Keep calm. Do not be afraid. <laughs> that was Isaiah's opening sentence to him. Take your son, for a remnant will return. Now, when you really think about the fact that Ahaz watches and says, Oh, hi, Sheer Jabuz, a remnant will return. You don't know if that sounds like a threat 
or like a promise. That's one of those, the cup is half empty or the cup is half full because you don't really know here if honestly it's telling you you're going to be captured and a few of you are going to escape <laughs> or God's got a promise and Judas, you are that remnant. Now be calm, be quiet, do not fear, do not be faint-hearted. First thing is, you're calm inside. You know who you are. You don't have to be afraid. Everything within you is ready. Okay, first thing is, you know who you are. Second thing is, you know who they are. Secondly, you know who your enemy is. You know, the Chinese philosopher who says, know thy enemy. Watch what God does to it. Y'all were laughing about Elijah's sense of humor where he was a little bit sarcastic to the priests to Baal. Remember that? Oh, yeah, he played with them some. He messed with their minds. He made them go a little crazy. Y'all, you've got to look at this carefully, what God does here. When God speaks about this in verse 4, he belittles these guys out of their mind. Watch what he does. He calls them, well, actually in the King James, he calls them two tails. <laughs> That's how King James translates it. NIV translates it. He calls them two smoking stubs. Uh, they're like a cigarette that's half smoke laying on the ground. They're just smoldering branches. Yo, they're not even flames. They're about to go out. They're just, they're ashes smoldering. That's how he, he goes, he has, why are you scared of these two smoking flames? They're just a bunch of smoke. Have you ever had your enemies talking a lot of noise? Hey, we're going to kill you. We're going to put someone else on the throne. And God just says, oh, they're just blowing smoke. They're just talking. They don't know what they're talking about. Okay, they're just blowing smoke because of the fierce son of Ramali. Now watch this. Do you notice what they did here? He didn't call him by his name. He calls him the son of Ramali. He didn't call him Pekka. Notice what he's doing. He's referring to something. He's saying because of the fierce son of Ramali. He didn't use the name. He's saying he's the son of a nobody. You don't see any kingship here. You don't see any Davidic throne. Who's Ramali? Oh, because he's talking, because he's a fierce son? What are you afraid of? Damascus? You see how he says it? Only Samaria? He said they have fierce anger. You know, what happens when you have fierce enemies? And really, they're just a nobody. Verse 8, he said the head of Aram, of Damascus, is only resin. And the head of Samaria is only Ramali. Only these guys. They're not anybody. Compare them to what you are. Look, you're the house of David. You've got a covenant. God established you. There's divine purpose. You've been put in there by prophecy. These guys got put in a totally different way. And God starts reminding him, look who your enemies are. There's no covenant protection for them. First of all, who you are. Second of all, who they are. And third, who God is. Whoa, he blows it away how he says it in verse 7. Listen what they say. And then listen what the sovereign Lord says. Man, is there a difference between what your circumstances are saying versus what God's saying? Man, you hear it. This is the sovereign Lord speaking to you. They're saying one thing. He's saying something else. This is a great idea about sovereignty, of how God comes on this scene. Okay, Adonai Yahweh. In your Bible, is this capitalized here? You have God capitalized in all caps? You'd think, well, why is it all caps here? Okay, because in the Hebrew, it's all caps here. It's funny. Dr. Alvinshide says when they translated this or when the scribe wrote it down, he made Yahweh all caps. The actual words are Adonai, Yahweh, Lord, Adonai. 
It's as strong as you can say. God has shown up. When you see in the Hebrew where God is using a double name, when he's saying, Lord God Almighty, when he is saying, the Lord of hosts, when he's saying, Lord Adonai, he is declaring himself in bold terms. And verse 7, God says, the sovereign Lord says to you, this isn't going to take place. He totally takes their plans and he tells them, this will not take place. Who you are, who they are, who God is, and what is the word from the Lord. Twofold here. What will happen to them and what will happen to you. Verse 7, God plainly tells you, it will not happen. Verse 8, within 65 years, Israel will be too shattered to even be a people. I mean, their dispersion sent them from one end to the other. What would you think in a church today? Does this kind of remind you of Paul's words? I was thinking about this. Timothy, you're a young man. Don't be afraid of him. Remember 1 Timothy 4.14. Timothy, remember, I laid hands on you and I gave you a prophetic word. Remember Paul reminded him in 4.14? He said, Timothy, I've given you a word from the Lord. 1 Timothy 1.18. He tells Timothy, war with the prophecy that I gave you. Did you know sometimes you're going to have to take the word that God gives you and go to war with it? I mean, you're going to have to make a choice. You've got somebody over here saying one thing, and you've got God saying something else. And God says, this isn't just a word. This is a prophecy. This is a prophetic word coming to you, telling you, you can change the situation. It can be totally different than what you see. Now watch the prophetic word Isaiah gets. Oh, man, it's beautiful. Stand firm in your faith. The verb is amen. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham, amen, the Lord. It was reckoned to him that it was faith. It's a committed trust. I'm counting on you doing it, and I have everything at stake that you will do what you say you'll do. I think a lot of struggling has gone on with the translation of the word believe. How strong do you make the word believe? When you look at this, this is a very strong text saying, how strong is your faith? How strong is your belief? Is your believer really believing? <laughs> I mean, is it really belief inside of you? Think of the time before you made the Lord actually Lord of your life. Remember, there might have been a time in your life where you believed that Jesus was there, but there was no personal conviction to it. Or maybe you made no commitment to the belief. You know, some people believe that Jesus lived, but some believe he was a charlatan <laughs> and he lived. What would you believe? But there comes a point when you said, I'll go with him. It's a committed trust. I'm in this. When Isaiah comes to Ahaz, he is telling him, stand firm. Amen. Believe. A-M-I-N. Make a commitment. Trust God to take care of this. The King James Version here says, if you do not believe, you will not be established. But actually, in the Hebrew, it's a wordplay. Y'all, you're not going to hear me say this very often. The only translation that captured this for you was the NIV. <laughs> Obviously, I was like, go for the NIV on this one. It's the cleanest translation on this one. It is hysterical. NIV actually caught what he said to Ahaz here. If you will not amen, you will not amen. The actual words in the Hebrew. If you do not stand firm, you will not even stand at all, Ahaz. Man, you see that play on the words. If you do not stand firm, you will not stand at all. If you do not amen, you will not amen. Do you think you could say that to yourself in Hebrew? Amen. He said it's so beautiful, though. If you do not amen, 
You will, Amon. You will not stand at all. The NIV catches the pun of the play on words. Have you ever had God say something that just rings in your ears? Man, I love the way that sounds. If you do not stand firm, you will not stand at all. Kind of reminds me, if you don't stand up for something, you're going to fall for anything. But this is even stronger. It talks about standing firm. Because if you do not, you will not even be left standing when this is all over with. You know, a lot of times in our life, we have two things. Number one, we have God's opinion come against man's opinion. Isn't that beautiful when those two ideas collide? What God thinks and what your insides are telling you. <laughs> what God is saying and how scared you are. This is Ahaz's roughest crisis. You know what? It didn't come at the end of his life. It came at year one. You know what you got to think about? You don't get a pick when your chief number one crisis comes against your life. You, know, you can't say, you know, I'm never going to face it. I've only been saved a week. What are you talking about? <laughs> his roughest crisis was in his first year. He didn't get to choose when his biggest day came. And it scared him to death. It was like he was looking that beast eye to eye. I want you to think about that thing in your life that you have the hardest time trusting God with. I doubt you're going to be sitting there thinking, oh, it's a military thing, like Ahaz was facing. But there's something in your life that literally it's scaring you to pieces. It's that thing that you literally have the most difficult time saying, God, I can trust you in this particular situation. That's what Ahaz was facing. Very first year, maybe your family was a disaster financially. And you're scared out of your mind you can't finish school. Maybe you're scared you're going to fail. Maybe it's fear over temptation. Maybe it's fear over relationships. Maybe it's fear over loss. Maybe it's fear over somebody that's threatening. You can name all the different types here, but Ahaz was facing his beast, the thing that threatened his position the most as king, the very first year of his reign, 20 years of age. What did Ahaz do with his religion here? Man, this is where the rubber really meets the road of, are you just learning things in Sunday school or Bible study or when you're reading? Or do they really make a difference in your circumstances? What happened to Ahaz's faith? Do you face your problems with God? You know, when I see you under pressure, it really will answer this. It really will tell you, the answer to that first question, is your religion for real? Is your faith really real to you? They march on Ahaz. But they could not overpower Jerusalem. It does exactly what Isaiah says. God had assured Ahaz of this through Isaiah. However, Ahaz is going to fail God very soon. You know, I was thinking about this. Those fatal helpers come as friendly allies and they remain as masters. None of us want to serve anybody. We just kind of have this feeling in life. I don't want to serve anybody. Have you ever struggled with committing yourself to God because you just really didn't want to serve God? But what's funny is we say, well, we don't want to serve anybody. We don't want to serve anyone. But you know what? If you don't serve God, you'll serve someone else. Man's going to serve something. We're built that way. We're going to serve somebody. You have things that you have in life and you say, man, I want this to help me in this situation. And you bring in your, your friendships. I always say, sometimes we can't get deliverance because uh, we've made friends with our demons. They help us. That control is good for us. That manipulation. That We can't get deliverance.
We don't want free from it. We made allies with it. But one day, they will twist on us and they will remain as our masters. Masters in our pleasures. Masters in pursuits. Masters in our habits. For a while, you think you control them. And they flip on you and they start controlling you. Masters. What happened with Ahaz and Isaiah here? Well, you'd probably think, well, I've got to get and dig in Bible tradition and see what it says it happened. We don't know. It's left hanging. Or is it? 2 Kings 16, it tells the exact story. I love it when the Bible does this. And I love it when it's pieced together. It's like you can hardly wait to get to the commentary and say, what happened with Ahaz? 2 Kings 16. He comes to the throne at 20 years of age and he rules, they say, for 16 or 20 years. I didn't get a chance to look into this. Why did he die at 36? That's Ahaz manages to do the worst idolatry practices ever. Yeah. He did the one, if you look at 2 Kings 16, start in the very beginning, it starts talking about him right off, one and two. He did that practice where he made his son pass through the fire. You know what that means? Occasionally, if you can't get the foreign gods to do what you want, and you try sacrificing to them and giving them what they want, Occasionally, you can really get a foreign god's attention if you throw your son or daughter into the fire as a sacrifice. Can you imagine a God-fearing king, a Davidic king, being that desperate for foreign aid? Man, he fell to the bottom rudder. You love the Book of Kings. I mean, they don't even try to cover for him. They're like, it is the worst ever. 20-year-old Ahaz wimps out. Basically, Ahaz decides to try to solve his problems with worldly ways. He looks around. What are my neighbors doing? How did they solve it? What's working for them? I'm going to do the same. Have you ever tried to save yourself by appealing to others? Don't even take a chance to appeal to God. Would you say with me that he did not stand firm? <laughs> he kind of messed up on his prophecy. In verse 7, it tells you. He makes a phone call. And he calls up the king of Assyria. Now, this is hysterical. They've asked him, the king of Israel and the king of Syria, have asked him, join with us and let's fight the king of Syria. And he was like, I'm smarter than all of you. I'm going to just call the king of Syria and I'm going to let him take care of you guys. And I'm going to tell him what you guys got plotting, what you've got on your mind. Look what the phone call consists of. He sends his messenger and he tells the king of Syria, Tiglath, Pelzer, whose goal is to take over the whole world, Verse 7, the NIV. I am your servant and your vassal. You know what that means? Oh, it's a terrible word of, I'm a puppet in your hands. I'm a puppet kingdom. I'll do anything you tell me. I become a robot putty in your hands. I'm a vassal. In other words, I'm going to quit having a mind of my own, a kingdom of my own. We're a vassal state. Would you come up and save me, king? Look at 7. And then he took the silver and the gold out of the temple and he sent it as a gift. Can you imagine? I am so desperate for your help. I'm going to go take all the money out of the church offering, wreck the church bank accounts, take all the gold out of the temple. I'm going to strip Solomon's kingdom. I'm going to take my heritage and I'm going to hand it over to you. You're crazy. Just like, why would you do that? You're taking your heritage. You're cleaning out the temple. 
to that guy and he says, the silver and the gold is my payment to you if you'll take care of me. Have you ever got it in fix-it mode? Ahaz got himself out of the immediate problem. He fixed it. Ah, temporary fix. Fixed it. He hired his deliverance. When we say, God is my deliverer, he was like, I can pay for that. <laughs> I can hire that. I'm going to just hire this guy. He's a, he's a fighter anyway. He'll just come over and he'll take care of it for me. How many of you do things to get out of your immediate problems? Let me tell you a little secret. When your enemy gets way too happy over the phone call, know you've made a big mistake. Uh, Tiglath Pileser was way too happy. <laughs> he was like, oh, what do you need me to do? Gladly. So he comes running up there, and he takes them out. He does everything he said he would. In fact, he deports them all to Damascus. So Ahaz is watching. Bye, Syrians. Hate to see you go. So he rounds them all up, and he sends them out of there. He deported the entire city. He executes Rezin. Ooh, got that one. Impaled him on the city gates or whatever they did with him. And during Hoshea's coup, Pekah got killed. So suddenly Israel's like, if that's happening in Damascus, I know what's happening next to us. So Hoshea rose up and killed Pekah. So both kings are taken down immediately. You know, God's message through Isaiah came true, but it was not in accordance with God's desires for Ahaz. You know, the word of the Lord came about, but it wasn't at all the way the Lord wanted it. And that would be sad to have prophecy in your life, for you could be a part of history and not be at all the intentions of God. You know, sometimes I think about this guy once said, sin makes life immeasurably harder than God ever intended for it to be. Man, you look at Adam and Eve, he never intended it. I mean, sin is a heavy taskmaster. I wrote this down. Assyria put their heel on the head of Judah and Jerusalem. And you know what? They got a taste of what Assyrian boot leather tastes like. You think about it, he may have gotten himself out of the problem, but he got the Assyrian boot right on top of his head. And he lived with it the entire 20 years of his reign. Now I want you to flip over. Hold 2 Kings 16, and it refers to 2 Chronicles 28, 23. Judah and Jerusalem. Man, you have a bad king, sells you all off. You know, it's amazing. One man can make this decision, and the whole city have to live with Assyrian rule. Second Chronicles 28, 23. Ahaz decides, well, while the deportation's going on, while they're taking everybody else, I'm going to run up to Damascus and watch what happened up there. And so he wanted to send tokens of his submission. Now, you're going to flip back between 2 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles 28, 23. We're going to watch what he does. In other words, he started comparing gods. This is the first comparative religions class, except the guy swapped religions. He was like, oh, I like that religion better than the one I've got. <laughs> and so in this particular comparative religions, he was like, I'm going to trade a part of this religion for a part of mine. In other words, you know, have you seen Hollywood do this? I mean, we laugh about this, but Hollywood really is into this. They take a little bit of the Kabbalah Jewish religion, do a little bit of that witchcraft. They do a little bit of the Hindu, a little bit of the New Age. A little bit of the Christian science. You all combine its neglectic faith. They said everybody who comes to India comes for some religious reason. 
They pick up the gurus, and they pick up the yoga, and they pick up all the meditations. And so Ahaz is in the cultural center of looking at all comparative religions. And in 2 Chronicles 28, it says, I'm going to compare gods. And you know what he decided? I kind of like how Damascus God treats them. I think I'll appeal to him. One commentary said that he brought Israel's gods of worshiping the golden calf and combined it with Damascus. What didn't make sense to me, I would not think Damascus gods were doing too good right here. I would think, well, they just let their king get killed, just let everybody get deported. I don't think this is a good god. <laughs> and so it's funny, Ahaz's mind was attracted to a god who just allowed them totally to get defeated. So back to 2 Kings 16, verse 10. Go hold the Chronicles because we're going to come back to see. First thing he does is he's in Damascus and he's like, oh, I like this altar here. Let's get the dimensions, and let's get the size, and I'm going to send it back to Tim D's, and he'll have it built by the time I get back. No kidding. It says that Uriah the priest did what the king ordered. So the priest built a pagan altar that Ahaz sent back the instructions for. In other words, if I'm going to get the God in Damascus, I'm also going to get his altar and the dimensions. Y'all think this through what we're talking about here. Ahaz is taking out Solomon's altar. Look at the trade here. Verse 12 and 13. Ahaz approached the Lord's altar. Only Levites and priests should do it. Now, y'all, what's crazy about this? Look at history. Remember when the guy was, when the ox stumbled and he stopped and he tried to, some of these things you shouldn't put your hands on. Then Ahaz's grandfather was Uzziah. And remember, he got so bold, he just decided, I'm going to go in and offer the sacrifices, even though I'm king and the priest is the only one that's supposed to. And he reached out and his hand became a leper. So one of the kings of Judah always was a leper. He had to go into exile because of leprosy. That's his grandpa. You'd think he would have a little more sense. I mean, if you're going to repeat sins, I wouldn't repeat one that's known in the family. <laughs> you ask yourself, why is this stuff passing down? So he approaches the Lord's altar. Seemingly nothing happened. That's scary. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. You're so reprobate that God doesn't even bother with you. It's not even enough. 14, 16. It says that he moved the brazen altar. Now watch what he did. We had to move the Lord's altar so we could put the king's altar in the place. You talk about rearranging the temple. Instead of trusting the Lord, he'd moved in his other gods. He'd already stripped the vessels out of the temple in verse 7. And it says, and he gave them to the king of Syria to pay on his bill. So he hands them off. Now, verse 18, change the temple architecture. Y'all, doesn't this kind of bother you? He pushed out David's temple design and Solomon's architecture. It's not that he went totally pagan. He mixed it. It says he went in and he gave the Lord's sacrifices on the pagan altars. And then it says every street corner he put up a pagan altar. So it's kind of like, it wasn't like he went 100% one way. He started mixing it together. He changed the ceremonial furnishings. He changed the private interest of the place and deference and respect to the king of Syria. Y'all, this is the craziest. The king had a way to enter the temple. He was like, let's redesign the temple. Let's take God's stuff and move it to the back. Let's put it out of the way. And let's put this new stuff I brought in in the front of the temple. 19 and 20, it reminds us in 2 Chronicles 28, and this is verse 24 and 25. He mutilated the temple furniture 
He closed the temple itself so the services with the holy place were discontinued. And all this speaks of Ahaz's depraved spiritual mind and his goodwill toward Tiglath Pileser, whom he sold his soul to. So you look at him, he takes all the furniture out, he rearranges the altar, he moves the furnishings around, and then he takes God and he moves him to the back. What part of God do you give up because of a relationship? What is it that you have with God that you throw out because of fear? I mean, the scariest part of this is he just put God in the back, in the back of his mind, in the back of the room, in the back of his heart. I think this is what blows me away more than any part of it. He didn't throw God out. He just put him in the back. He just redesigned. I can't imagine taking Solomon's temple and redesigning it. Verse 20 in 2 Chronicles 28-26, it says he rested with his fathers. He was buried in Jerusalem, but he was not placed in the tombs of the kings of Israel. Chronicles makes that. You know, think about it. He met God on Judgment Day dressed in Assyrian robes. Can you imagine covering yourself with Assyrian robes rather than the covering yourself with the blood of... wonder how his judgment went. At this point in verse 20, it says something, and I think it's worth noting. He said, and he was succeeded by his son, Hezekiah. We see what happens here is the replacement. Three things that happened here. Ahaz was confronted by Isaiah. What Ahaz ought to have done. What should Ahaz have done? Didn't that sometimes help you to think, oh, I don't like how it really did happen, but let's try to think it through of how it should have. Number one, remember some things never change. When we remember who we are, that we're covenant, children of promise, go back to Isaiah 7, children of promise, our circumstances never change who we are. He sees himself as a king who's going to be killed the very first year. He was young. He was in a lot of trouble. You're going to have times in your life where fear has to face, totally has to face trust. The two are going to meet. It's going to be fear versus trust. It's going to be a battle between fear and trust. The crisis does not change who we are. Crisis, circumstances, challenges do not change your covenant. You know, it could happen to you and you get up and tomorrow morning you face the biggest crisis of your life. What's going to rise up inside of you? This is where Isaiah is looking at you and saying, be calm. You've been trained all your life not to fail at this moment. Sometimes before I go into my hardest situation, hardest confrontation, I tell myself, God has been training me all my life not to fail at this moment. You're not a different person with a different God. If you hit a tough time, if you get downhearted, crisis does not make you lose your relationship with God. Don't let the connection sever. The assurance. How you handle a crisis shows your connection to God. Does the verses in the Bible change? Do the promises change? That's what I always say about the end time. It looks terrible in Revelation. But I don't think our protection verses goes out the window. I don't think Psalm 91 changes. We lose part of our covenant. I don't think when we face something that looks like we're absolutely wiped out, it changes. The Word of God stays the same, even though our challenges continue to change. Number one, he had to remember some things never change. Number two, he had to remember the songs of faith that we sing. 
Is there a way in history we could know what kind of songs did Ahaz sing? Can we know something he had sung? Did you know Psalm 2? They believe it's the coronation song of when a king was put on the throne. Y'all want to flip to Psalm 2? Hold your place there. It's the only song I know in his hymnal. We're going to look at it in a moment. It's a coronation song crowning a new king. You know, we don't have coronation ceremonies, but we do have inaugurations. So if we were in England, we might understand this a little bit more. But in this coronation, you look at it, it outlines out in four stanzas. And it describes the context of the change as the new king ascends the throne. 20-year-old king walks up. Verse 1 through 3 is the first verse sung by the choir in third person. And it's against his Messiah. Anytime a new king assumed the throne, the enemies of the kingdom tried to take advantage. And you see this. Right here in the coronation song, the minute you try to make an impact on your generation, enemies plot against you. Do not think the world will be at peace with you. I've tried to keep renewing my mind to that. That always takes me a little bit by surprise. But you see here, it talks about as you assume your throne, the enemies of the kingdom try to take advantage. The people's plot. But look what happens four through six. But the Lord laughs. (laughs) The Lord in heaven laughs. He scoffs at them. You can write down, trust can laugh. Wouldn't Ahaz have been different if he could have trusted God and started laughing? God is so much bigger than all my problems. Do you know you can keep your sense of humor when you stay in trust? Have you ever got too serious? It's like my problems are too big, I'm just too worried, everything inside of me is moving. And you forget to laugh, you forget your humor. He couldn't think clear. The king who's being crowned is singing this part. This is his part to sing. And he said to me, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. It's an adoption formula. God announces the adoption of the king this day. Let me tell you the difference. Sounds pretty divine. It's totally different than the pagans. The pagans thought you became king because you were the son of God. Israel, you become the son of God because it's an adoption cross for their kings. Man, didn't that lay out well. Egypt thought the divineness was in their pharaohs. But Israel knew that God himself became the king's father. And the king became the son. And it says, kiss the son, for his wrath can flare up. (laughs) And Ahaz sang this song. When you're a crisis, remember the song of faith that you've sung. In this psalm, I want you to look. Does your Bible capitalize the word son? And if it does, it's because they're looking ahead to who that son represents in the future. If you think about it, you see church songs and you sing them. You say, Lord, you're my everything. You're all I need. You're all I've ever wanted. The reason I live is to worship you. These are nice church songs. You know, sometimes you tell yourself, you just don't understand. I have a real problem. I don't have time to sing. Sunday school. Sunday school is not going to get me through this. Can you see Isaiah saying, in vain you're worshiping me with your lips? You're coming to serve Your religion hadn't moved in. You're letting your religion stay in the back part of your temple and not in the forefront. It's not our shield. You know, there's a lot of talk these days on theology of the difference of you being a son and a servant. People really get into, hey, we're sons. There's big pushes on adoption and friendship. I want to ask you, is it a theory 
in your mind. Because if you understand this, when you sing this song, you'll sing the song of trust and you won't forget your God in the day of trouble. Number three, remember when you're in a crisis, faith is really the victory. Faith stands. I see basically God begging Ahaz, stand, stand. Have you ever had God prophetically just tell you, I would love to see the difference? And you see God telling you, please make a difference. Stand. I would love to see what it would look like differently in your life if you did it the way God wanted you to. What was that guy that said, the world is yet to see a man totally committed to God? What would that life look like? What would history look like if he had stood? If you didn't stand firm, you will not stand at all. Let's go back to our Isaiah 7 story. Verse 10. Because of Chronicles, because of Kings, we know he failed. But God approaches Ahaz one more time. And you're going to understand something. The baby you've never seen. It begins with the word in one of the translations as moreover. Or again, the Lord comes to Ahaz. And again, he says to Ahaz, you house of David. He says to him again, you're in covenant. You're on this throne because it's a divine junction. He has still addressed him as the house of David, the current occupant of the throne. But one thing changes. Isaiah addresses him. He says, my God, not your God, not our God. He said, Ahaz, my God says to you. It's no longer your God, Ahaz. And he looks at him and he appeals to him one last time. Now, people talk about, well, the New Testament's full of mercy and grace, but the Old Testament in, oh my gosh, the Old Testament rivets in grace and mercy. I don't think that God's compassion is overflowing. Look at him, look at Ahaz one more time, and he says to him, Ahaz, ask me a sign. If that's your problem, that you don't think I can do it, if you honestly think these other gods are better, you threw out the money, you've offered the sacrifices yourself, you've moved the furnishings around, you've done the break, ask me any sign, and look what God says. You talk about an open-ended question. He said, you ask me for a sign that is high as the heavens, as deep as the seas. He said, you ask me for a sign that is deep as Sheol or as high as the heavens. And he said, I'll give it to you, Ahaz. Just ask me. Can you imagine God telling you, I will prove to you I'm trustworthy. Just ask me anything you want to ask. What does Ahaz say here? Oh, it sounds spiritual enough. I'll not test the Lord my God. I'll not test God. And Isaiah is sick of this king. He looks at him and says, Is it bad enough, you weary man, that you have to weary God himself? How dare you act in hypocrisy? How dare you act like piety of, Oh, we can't trouble God with a miracle. That's so wrong to do something like that. You know what I think this is? It's an invitation to you from God to say, Trust me. Trust me with your life. I'm open invitation. I'm saying, ask as high a request from God as you want to. If God's going to do this for an evil king Ahaz, then surely he'll do it for New Testament, born-again, blood-bought, covenant-believing Christians. I don't think it closes the door. He said, ask me any sign you want to ask me. 
You know, sometimes I think what we get in trouble while we don't live enough for God is we don't ask. We don't take him up on this offer. We give him a little pious, pharisaical answer and just say, oh, that's so wrong. When Isaiah himself is standing before us, do you know what Isaiah stands before you tonight? He says the same thing. He said, ask God. Is there anything too big for you? Make it as big of a request as you want it to be. God invites you to the supernatural. He invites you to a supernatural with no ceilings on it and no limitations. And look what God says. He said, Ahaz, you don't ask for a sign. I'll give you one. Y'all, this is not a verse for Christmas only. This is not the verse that gives us the validation for the incarnation only. It is not the ultimate messianic prediction. That's not what it's only about. This is an invitation to you personally to make it real. Would you say, Janice, that it's make it real, make it personal, make it mine? <laughs> I mean, he's basically taken the Bible and he said, make this yours, Ahaz. Own your faith. Make it real to you. Whatever it takes to make the gospel real, take it. It's the offer right now. And in this, we get the most famous verse for Christmas. We get the ultimate, absolute validation of an incarnation. And we get the best messianic prediction. It says a virgin will bear a child. What a verse. That is the context is Ahaz. And the glory of this verse is it was Jewish translators of the Septuagint that caught the meaning of virgin. I mean, it'd be one thing for Christians to say the word means virgin. Oh, but no, when they translated it, when they made the Septuagint translation from the Hebrew, they said a virgin will bear a child. It was a slight meaning, a slight reference, but oh, was it prophetic. Because Matthew comes along and he says, you're right, a virgin will bear a child. And this predicted, and his name will be Emmanuel, Ahaz, meaning God is with us. And Ahaz, you won't do it as king, but meet your replacement. This king will. And he replaced him both physically with his son Hezekiah, who was a good king, and he replaced him spiritually with a king that would forever do his will. He ends with 17 through 25. He says, Before the baby can eat solid food and judge between right and wrong, the two kings that you dread will be dead. They will be no more. You don't ask for a sign, so God came up with one. You know, the essential message of chapter 7 is God will come to you and he will make you a personal offer that hopefully you can't resist. Amen? Amen.